All right, Titus chapter 3 this evening. And uh, for the past few weeks on Sunday nights, we've preached on faithful sayings for faithful servants. By the Lord's help and by His will, I hope to preach on that this evening uh, one final time. Titus chapter number 3, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 3. Paul is writing to this young pastor, Titus, and he reminds him, he says, "...for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another." But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I would ask that you'd have your will and way this evening. Lord, I don't have within me what it takes. Lord, I I come tonight, I, I need to be fed and I need to be helped. Lord, I believe you're able to feed them and me at the same time. Lord, I believe You're able to do in my heart and soul what I need this evening. So, Father, I confess myself in need, both before heaven and before these, and I ask, God, that You would work and move in my soul. I ask, Lord, that whatever needs there are present in the hearts of those that are here, that You'd meet those needs according to the riches and grace that You have in Christ Jesus, and we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we do love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as Paul has been giving us a few faithful sayings, we understand that when Paul calls a saying faithful, he is not implying that it is any more inerrant, that it is any more infallible or any more inspired than the rest of the Word of God. But when we speak of faithfulness, we tend to think almost, or I do anyways, I think of a faithful friend. I think of somebody that stuck stuck by me and stood by me through difficult times. You know, most of us will only get a handful of people like that in life. Isn't that true? I mean people that really stand by you. And I believe that Paul is saying this to these young pastors. He's saying that as you endeavor to serve God, there's going to be some tough times. There's going to be times it'd be easy to quit. There's going to be times that'll get quite discouraging. There's going to be times when it'll feel as though everything is crushing in on you. And in those moments, young men, there are some things I've learned that I believe be a help to you. Some sayings that have stood by me in my darkest hours. And we studied how that, that Paul reminded Timothy that God saves sinners. And let me tell you something. If we're going to do this work of God, we've got to always remember that God saves sinners. Never lose sight of that truth. Uh, We don't just do it because we're commanded. Of course, we are commanded to reach people with the gospel. But we do it because it works. Because God loves sinners. And He has a desire to save them with His glorious gospel. We learn that godliness is good for you. In a world that would tell you and, and try to remind you and try to convince you that the way of godliness is not beneficial, 
that it is shackles and chains. Paul reminds us that godliness is not a burden from the Lord, but a blessing from the Lord, and that we'll be helped if we'll live in a Christ-like manner. He reminds Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy that going on is always better than giving up. Let me tell you something. Your adversary, the devil, would like to tell you often that you'd be better off just quit on God. But Paul says, listen, Timothy, when he starts to tell you that, I don't want you to ever forget that if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. And that going on is far better. When he writes to young Titus, he gives him this truth. He says, Titus, I want you to always remember that the gospel leads to good works. And you say, preacher, why do you think that Paul wanted Titus to understand this? Well, he tells him in verse number 8, he says, I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. And I think the reason that Paul is, is uh, exhorting Titus to remember this truth is because pastors are faced always with the next gimmick and the next program and the next system that's going to straighten things out. But let me tell you something. The gospel has the power to change a man's life. And the Word of God, inasmuch as it is preached and absorbed and applied in our lives, has the ability to lead us to a closer walk with Jesus Christ. And so in a world of... of, of of distractions, in a world of snake oil salesmen, in a world of people, uh, when you walk through this pathway, every one of them at a different booth crying out to you saying, try this, try that, try this, try that. I believe that one of the things that Paul wants us to remember is not to get off course, but to remain on the course of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to depend on that in as much as it can change a man's life. You know, I was thinking as I prepared for this message, it is almost overwhelming the number of times that Paul reminds you and I what we used to be. You go through Paul's writings, and it's almost every other chapter that Paul says, now don't forget what you used to be. Don't forget what you used to be. Don't forget that it was you and I that walked according to the course of this world. Don't forget that it was you and I that were blinded to the truth of God's Word. Don't forget that it was you and I that were alienated from the family of God. And once again, Paul exhorts Titus to remind the people that are around him of their sinful past. Now, I don't believe that God is doing that to glory in sin. I don't believe that He's trying to uh, lead us to, to brag about the sinful life that we lived or to, to uh, joke about the, the wickedness and the chains that once held us. But rather, I believe he's doing this because we're so susceptible to forget. You know, we get in the house of God, we get our doctrine work out, we get our standards work out, we get a new wardrobe, we get everything all tucked away. And it's so easy for our flesh to forget that you and I were once the same thing as those people on the outside. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I'm talking about those folks that when you drive up and down the street, you look at them and you think, oh, how sin has them. I'm talking about the people that you go, uh, me and my wife, every time that we, that we come to church, we, uh, we, we pass by, they opened up some bar there in halls. And uh, every time we drive by on Sunday nights, I look at my wife, I say, well, the bar's full. The bar's full. 
people that are trying to get one last drink in before they've got to go back and be grown-ups tomorrow morning. And it's so easy to look at them and to say, oh my, what a mess they're in. And you know, there's almost a danger in that because it's an indulgence of the flesh. It's our flesh's way of pretending to be spiritual. And it feeds to our pride. And I believe that Paul exhorts us to remember what we were because we are so susceptible to forget what we were. And he reminds us of our sinful past. I want you to notice that he points to the manifestation of our need. He says this in verse number 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived. He says, you want three words, Titus, to describe you and me before we got born again? We were foolish, disobedient, and deceived. It's easy to look at a lost and dying world and think, oh, how foolish they are. How foolish they are, man. I mean, they see what, what uh, the life of sin is doing to them. They see, I mean, you listen, the, the divorce rate is skyrocketing. The suicide rate is skyrocketing. Uh, homes are being blown to pieces. Uh, young people are growing up. I'm talking babies being born addicted to things. And I, It's so easy to look around this world and say, how foolish they are to live in sin. Well, let me remind you that you and I both, we spent a period of our lives where we thought we was good enough to do it on our own and make our own way to heaven. We were just as foolish. Just as foolish. We were just as disobedient. You ever just wonder why it is that unsaved people can't just, just straighten up? We're tempted to think that sometimes, aren't we? You know, we look at a lost nine world and think, what's the matter with them? Well, I'll tell you exactly what's the matter with them. They're lost in their sins, and they are the children of disobedience. That's what Paul calls them. The children of disobedience. Rebellion is inherent to their nature, and they know not but to go their own way. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man. You and I look for it through the prism of God's Word, and we say, why don't they do right? Well, if you were to look at it through the prism of their eyes, they are doing right. But they're disobedient. They're deceived. They're deceived. Let me tell you something. You'd be amazed. If you're here lost without Christ, you'd be amazed once you get born again how the world will look different to you. You'd just be amazed. And, I, and you're just going to have to take my word for it. I can't convince you. I can't talk you into it. And some of you here, you remember that moment when you got up from your knees or you got up from an altar or you lifted your head or whatever uh, position you were in whenever you accepted Christ and you looked at the world for the first time through new eyes. Everything looked different. All of a sudden now, hey, listen, all of a sudden the trends of the world are no longer the trends of the world. Now they're the course of the world and the spirit of Antichrist and the mystery of iniquity that now work. You, you see the bad things that happen to Christians, and it's no longer just misfortune and unfortunate, but you see how that the hand of Satan is trying to persecute them, but the hand of God is trying to perfect them. And all of a sudden, it's like somebody turned a light on. You think to yourself, how was I ever so blind? But don't ever forget that you were once blind. You were once blind. You walked according to the course of this world. We see the manifestation of our need. Titus says, you, uh, Paul says, Titus, Titus, don't ever forget in how foul a shape you were when God found you. He describes the manifestation of our need. He describes the master of our nature. He says, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. And that was us. You see, the lost individual, and you were this way before you got saved, and I was this way before I got saved, they knew only to do that which served their lusts and pleasures. The world summarizes it with this, uh, with this motto and with this ideal and with this catchphrase. If it feels good, do it. 
And it seems as though those people that you drive by and you see down at the bar, the cars parked there, you know what they're doing? They're serving divers' lusts and pleasures. They're trying to squeeze in a little bit more before work time comes. And they've got to grunt it out and go back and make it through another week. It's so easy as Christians to look outward at that world and to say, what is wrong with them? Why do they live in such a way? Can they not see there's something bigger? No. No, they can't see there's something bigger. You see, they think they're living free, but they can't see the chains around their their legs and their feet. They think that's freedom. Can I give you an example? Teenagers. I love teenagers. Teenagers reach a place where they decide nobody's going to tell me what to do. And they think being a grown-up is nobody telling you what to do. The truth is, you come into the place of adulthood, and neighbor, you don't escape responsibility. You embrace responsibility. Now you ain't just got mom and daddy telling you what to do. You got the bank telling you what to do. You got the boss telling you what to do. You got the government telling you what to do. You, everywhere that you turn, people are telling you what to do. But you see, to a, to a teenager, that looks like freedom. They can't see it from the other side. To them, it looks free. To them, it looks independent. But let me tell you something. We all serve a master. Every one of us. Every one of us serve a master. And you know what what God's acid test is to find out which master you're serving? He said in the book of Romans, To whom do you yield your members unto? Could I put it the way that maybe we might, might be a little familiar with? What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time doing? If you spend your time in the Word of God and the things of God... Listen, I'm not talking about living like some kind of monk stowed away in, in, in your home, in your closet, with a Bible on your lap 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I'm saying this. If God has a good portion of your life, if you have a relationship with Him, if you have yielded yourself to Him, then you're a servant of Him. But the lost and dying world, they don't serve God. So who do they serve? They serve... What are the two choices? God or mammon? You know what mammon is? More particularly, I know we say mammon is man, and there is a sense in which that is true, but more particularly, mammon is the flesh. It's that which is temporal, that which can be felt and tasted and smelt and seen. And the lost man, that's the master of his life. And guess what? That was the master of your life. That's what you spent your time doing, just trying to get from one pleasure to the next. We see the master of our nature, but we notice the mistreatment of our neighbors that characterized us. It says, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, we, we look through Western eyes across the sea and we see the Middle East boiling. And it is boiling. And we see the hatred. We see the violence. We see just abhorrent things that turn the stomach that are taking place. And you say to yourself, how could a man have it within him to commit such atrocities? Well, let me tell you something. That's what the flesh does. Every one of us, we have in our flesh the capacity to live with that kind of hatred and malice and envying and strife. Every one of us has that capacity. I, I, listen, I don't, I don't mean this in an ugly way, but everybody got real quiet like they don't believe me, but that's true. That's true. There came a time David said, no, it would never be me, and pretty soon it was him. 
It was Him that took a man's life. It was Him uh, that lied about it. It was Him that was willing to sacrifice the life of your eye on the altar of His pleasure and His flesh. And you say you can't do it, but you could do it. It's within you to do that. And if there's any restraining influence and power, any, any sort of, of influence that works at odds with that wickedness that is inherent to our nature, it is only the Spirit of God at work within us. That was us, man. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That was us. I'm not just saying that is them. I'm saying that was us. And if it hadn't been for the grace of God, that'd still be us. I mean, when you got saved, it wasn't because God liked you better than everybody else. Right? When you got saved, it wasn't because God thought you had a lot of potential. It was by His grace that He saved you. And you could be in that mess, and I could be in that mess, and we were headed in that direction. There's a reminder of our sinful past, but there's a reminder of our Savior's power. I like that it says that we were those things. We were those things. Not that we still are, but that we were. We still could be. We still could live that way, behave that way. But God says through Paul to Titus, says, listen, you were that way. They were that way. But now, but. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. (laughs) We didn't help Him save us. He saved us. We didn't get ourselves out of that mess. He saved us. We didn't work it out. He saved us. You say, how did you get saved? Preacher, God saved me. That's how. And if you're saved, it's because God saved you. Not because you helped Him, but because He saved you. We notice the appearance of our Savior's power, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. You could make a twofold application of this. And, And certainly there is an application that the kindness and love of God appeared on Calvary. But I believe that this language evokes the idea that Paul spoke about to the church at Galatia when he spoke of Jesus Christ being set forth evidently crucified among them. If you want me, that's the exposition. I believe that that is what he's talking about. And he's saying this, Aren't you glad for the day that the love of God appeared in your life, showed up in your life? Now, the reason that I believe that to be so is because Titus who is part of that ourselves that he's speaking of, we ourselves. Titus wouldn't have been alive to have seen the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is this, through the spiritual eye, through the eye of faith, you saw the love of God. You saw the kindness of God. You saw Christ crucified in a spiritual sense. I'm not talking about a vision or a dream. I'm talking about he recognized that Jesus had died for him. I like that it says it appeared. Now, we could talk about a lot of things. I, you know, there's, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, and there's always somebody that wants to drag you into one or the other. I understand that a person has to be receptive to the gospel. I understand there is a choice they must make when presented with the gospel. And I am in no way minimizing or dismissing uh, or diminishing that decision that they must make. But I also believe that in a very real way, through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God, that we are, are uh, faced with the truth of Calvary. I believe that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about being evidently set forth among you, crucified. I believe there is in a very real sense, there came a time in my life 
when I had heard, and I was sharing with them this morning Sunday school, I'd heard the gospel, I'd heard it, I'd heard it, I'd heard it for ten years. The first ten years of my life, I'd grown up in a church that preached the gospel, that taught the gospel. Listen, I, I sat in the children's church classes. I sat beside people. I, I can even remember, listen now, I can even remember my friends raising their hands and sometimes me raising my hand with them when I wasn't even interested. I, I heard the gospel. But at ten years old the kindness and love of God towards man appeared to me. It, it became real, neighbor. I mean, I, I saw it. Now, I don't mean that I saw it in the sense of a vision or dream, but I mean in that moment I recognized not just that God loved everybody, but that God loved me. That's the grace of God that did that. That's the grace of God that did that. You see, you know what the running theme is in these next few points? that me and you didn't do nothing, God did everything. That's the theme that is at work here. We see the appearance of our Savior's power. We see the application of our power. We saw it. We recognized that we were lost and undone. And then how did it have an effect in our hearts and lives? Not by works of righteousness, verse 5, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. I like that it says according to His mercy, He saved us. You know, there's a big difference between the idea of according and out of. Certainly, God is a merciful God. And He could have had just a little bit of mercy, and it would have been out of His mercy. But the idea of according... Can I give you an illustration that sort of conveys that? The story is told about two men on the golf course. Uh, one of these real, I mean, highfalutin clubs, you know, where they don't, you know, they don't let you wear blue jean shorts. You know, I mean, they're just really... <laughs> one of them clubs I don't ever get to play at, you know, and... And uh, two men were, were out and they were playing. They had a caddy, each of them. And both these men were millionaires. And they came to the end of the courts. And one man reached into his wallet, pulled a $5 bill out, gave it to the caddy, said, thank you for a good day's service. Now, that man had millions of dollars. And he pulled a $5 bill out and gave that caddy after 18 long holes of golf that he carried his bag. The man next to him reached into his wallet and pulled out a $100 bill and handed it to him and said, I appreciate your hard work. Thank you for what you've done for us today. You say, what's the difference, preacher? Well, the first man, he gave him out of his abundance. But the second man, he gave him according to his abundance. Listen, he's going to say a word about the abundance of his mercy in a second. But I don't know if you realize this, but when, when Jesus saved you, he did a real good job of it. He didn't just barely save you. He saved you according to His mercy. But I think there's another thought that's inherent to that, which is this, that His salvation had nothing to do with works of righteousness on your behalf. And that is not only past, friend, that is future as well. It's not just that you did, that you did not earn His salvation. We all know that we didn't earn His salvation. It's that you're never going to do enough to earn His salvation. Your earning didn't have anything to do with Him saving you. Now, listen, you may be something today. I don't know. But you want nothing when God found you. And the truth is, relative to the perfect standard of Jesus' righteousness, I don't care what you are today, you're still nothing compared to Him. He didn't save you because you had done anything worth saving. He didn't save you because you're ever going to do anything worth saving. He saved you according to His mercy. That's how it was done. 
Notice he goes on by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I don't have time, but man, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. The washing of regeneration. What does the idea of regeneration denote? The idea of giving new life. It's what it means to regenerate something. Uh, you know, that's what Mr. Frankenstein did with his monster. He regenerated it, right? He, he put life in it, supposedly. Let me tell you something. God did something a lot better than Mr. Frankenstein ever, 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 ever hoped to. He took someone a lot more dead than a corpse, and that was you and me, and He put a lot more life into it than that fictional character ever could have imagined to. He regenerated you. And you know what happened? That old man was dead, and so a new man is now living. Now, let me tell you something. I, that, that's... That, that's illegal when you do it according to your identity and police record, right? I mean, man, if you want to get rid of your record, that's how you do it. You fake a death and then you come out with new papers. Brand new, clean, spotless record. You know when God saved you, when you got up from Calvary, you were a new man. You were a new person. He talks about the uh, re- washing of regeneration. He talks about the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Then notice the abundance that he speaks of, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I spent some time meditating on that verse, because what is it talking about? What has he shed upon us? It could be that he has shed upon us the regeneration through which He has washed us. It could be He has shed upon us the Holy Ghost, which uh, now indwells us. But I don't believe that's what He's talking about. And here's why. Regeneration is an action. And the Holy Ghost is a person. And so it would have said, whom He shed upon us. And you don't shed the Holy Ghost upon people. Uh, he, he, he ain't a seasoning. He ain't paprika that you spread on top of a Christian. He don't go on top. He goes in the midst. Right? Hey, I know it sounds simple, but if you think about it, you'll be amazed how profound that was. It, it, it's not His working on the outside. It's His working on the inside. And the evidence on the outside is just evidence that there's something on the inside. So what's he talking about? He's talking about His mercy that He shed upon us. You know what I thought about? I thought about two things. One, and we'll talk about it in a minute, the abundance, or we've already talked about it. When He saved us, it took a lot of mercy to save us. And not only did it take a lot of mercy, but it left a lot of mercy when He saved us. Uh, the, the, The psalmist said this, that mercy and truth shall follow me. All the days of my life. You didn't just quit. You didn't quit getting God's mercy after you got born again. Every step that you take, the mercy of God is right there upon you and with you. Everywhere that you go. Hey, listen, I, 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 if you drive the same roads I drive, you know the mercy of God's present with you. The kind of people they give a license to. But it's interesting to me that it uses the word shed. And you know why? Because the idea of something being shed has the idea that that which is shedding it, it's costing them something. I tell you, and and I don't know, maybe this weirds you out. Some people weirded out by stuff like this. But you know what I thought about? I thought about a snake shedding their skin. And they leave a part of them behind. And I thought about what God did for us at Calvary and what it cost Him to have mercy on us. Don't ever, listen, just because He's infinite 
And just because His riches are abundant, don't ever make the mistake of thinking it didn't cost God something to send Christ to Calvary. Don't ever think that it wasn't. We talk about salvation being full and free. And I'm glad it is full and free to you and me. But let me tell you something. We might say it better this way, that it's not free. It's simply paid for. It was a greater debt than we could have ever imagined. There are people, listen to me, in hell tonight paying on that debt and never paying it off. And and listen, the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever and ever, and they'll never get it paid off. But in, 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 in those few hours on Calvary, the righteousness of Christ was enough to abate the justice of holy God. It cost God something to save you. We see the abundance that's spoken of. And finally, I'm done. I want you to notice the reminder of salvation's purpose. We have a reminder of our sinful past, what we were. We have a reminder of our Savior's power, but the kindness and love of God toward man, uh, our Savior toward man appeared. And then finally, we have a reminder of salvation's purpose. Now, why did God do all of that? Well, look at verse number 7. He says this in verse number 7. That, now, that, that, that statement links a consequence. He did all these things, uh, that the kindness uh, and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That, all these things happen. Why? For this purpose. That, being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When you got saved, you got a new wealth in the spiritual realm. Now, when I talk about wealth, I'm not talking about, and I'm not being derogatory when I say this, I'm not talking about uh, God's blessings and provisions on you temporally in this world. Listen, if you're like me, God takes care of you all the time. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, a mansion one day. We can talk a lot about that mansion. I, I'm, I'm talking about the spiritual blessings and benefits and privilege that you have in Jesus Christ right now. You say, how do you know that? Well, how is it accessed? We should be made heirs according. According. So, in other words, in the measure to which we exercise this will determine the measure to which we enjoy this inheritance, we enjoy this gift, we enjoy this which is provided for us, the hope of eternal life. Now, if a thing is seen, it's not hoped for, right? So, this is something accessed by hope and faith. Now, we understand that we walk by faith now, not by sight, but there's coming a day uh, that, you know, uh, faith, hope, and love are, uh, well, charity... Faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. You ever wonder why? Because there's coming a day we ain't going to need faith and hope anymore. There's coming a day we're going to see eye to eye. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. But right now we see through a glass darkly. So right now we have faith, we have hope. And inasmuch as we believe and comprehend and appropriate and arrest the position that we have in Jesus Christ... According to that hope, according to that endeavor, according to that pursuit, we enjoy this inheritance we have in eternal life. Let me tell you something. You'd be amazed. You're sitting around waiting on a mansion, but you'd be amazed what God has for you right here, right now, in that pew where you sit. You'd be amazed the encouragement, the comfort, the strength, the power, 
the, the things that God has readily available to you through your relationship and communion with Him and through the surrender that you display to the Holy Spirit. Right now, you've been given a new wealth when God saved you. God didn't just save you. Listen now carefully. God didn't just save you to keep you out of hell. That's a great misnomer. <laughs> now, God did save you, and God, that is going to keep you out of hell. But that wasn't the only reason God saved you. God didn't save you just to keep you out of hell. God saved you to make you His child. God saved you that you might be justified by grace. That you might stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That you might be seated in the book of Ephesians in the heavenlies together with Him. That you might enjoy all of the blessings and all of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. You were given a new wealth. And I want you to notice verse number 8, you were given a new walk. He says this, this is a faithful saying. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying everything I just said. (laughs) This, all these things, all these things, who you were and what God did in your life, all these things, that's a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. So if you came and you don't want me to preach on this night, you're wrong. (laughs) Affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. When we think of maintaining something, we think of two things simultaneously. One, we recognize the stewardship of something already begun. That's what maintaining something is, isn't it? Uh, Not necessarily starting something, but rather keeping something going that's already been started. And then when we think of the idea of maintaining, I, I don't know about you, but I think the idea of maintenance. We're coming in on Saturday and we're going to do a little maintenance. We're going to do a little work on some stuff that, that it ain't falling apart, but if you don't maintain it, it will fall apart. And Paul says that God has done all these things in our life and that the truth of this ought to be sufficient to make us careful in the maintenance of our life. In other words, when you feel like not doing good anymore when you feel like giving up, when you feel like... You know, sometimes it's easy to feel like good guys finish last, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to feel like serving God just didn't pay off. And sometimes in those moments where you feel like you've served God, man, you've prayed, you've studied, you've testified, you've witnessed, you've trusted God, you've lived sacrificially, you've tried to work for the cause of Christ, and it feels like things aren't going anywhere. Can I just remind you? Can I just remind you? Then in those moments, don't give up. Just remember what you used to be, what God saved you from, how He saved you. You know what the truth that's being conveyed here is? That God did all the work. And so uh, at times when we feel like what we're doing ain't working, let's just remind ourselves that God is the one that's doing all the work. He is the one that is exercising these things. Ephesians says this, that we are His workmanship. I know we're fellow laborers. I understand that. But don't ever forget, you're not only fellow laborers, you're also the project He's working on. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which we were foreordained to walk therein. It's the will of God that we walk in this new walk. That's the will of God. And then finally, I want you to notice at the end of verse 8, it gives us a new witness. He says, these things are good and profitable unto men. In other words, Paul says this, when you see, when, Titus, when you see folks slip them, 
Just remember what they remind them of what they used to be. You know, some folks say sometimes, Preacher, why, why do you preach on the gospel to a group of saved folks? Because I've learned this, that those who know the story best love to hear it told. I, I, I don't think we ever go wrong. I understand there's a place for expounding the Word of God. I understand there's a place for the whole counsel of God. I'm not being dismissive of that. But I think we are, are diminishing the impact of the gospel when we imagine that being reminded of those things has no spiritual value and benefit. Absolutely, it has spiritual value and benefit. It reminds us, it prods us on to good works. It encourages us when we remember what we used to be and how God saved us and how He loves us and all the things that He's done for us. You know what that ought to do? That ought to make us walk a little straighter, stand up a little taller, serve a little more carefully. And if we'll do that, you know what? That'll make an impact. These things are good and profitable unto men. That it'll be good. Listen, it'll be good for your family to know what you used to be. I, I don't. I understand. We got to be careful about glorying in sin, but I think we got to be careful lest we forget that we were washed from our old sins. You say, preacher, it feels frustrating sometimes. I don't feel like going on. Well, just remember where you'd be if God hadn't saved you, and that ought to be enough to keep you going. And I believe it is.